Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Sarah Boardman Judson lived from 1803 to 1845, and she was an incredible and remarkable Christian missionary who faithfully served the Lord for much of her life in Burma, what we call today Miramar. In fact, she served there for almost two decades. She married and buried one missionary husband, George Boardman, and then she remarried and was buried herself by another missionary, the famous Adoniram Judson. Her life was a marvelous witness in so many ways to the grace of God and the wisdom of God. And her life is a beautiful testimony to the truth. Our God knows what he is doing, even in the midst of the greatest difficulties and trials. Her life is also a beautiful commentary on a Thanksgiving psalm of King David, Psalm 138, a psalm that Willem Gimmerman well says is a psalm with messianic overtones flowing through it. We're going to basically analyze this text this morning in four movements, verses 1 and 2, verse 3, verses 4 through 6, and then again in verse 7 and 8, which I do believe is a natural division of this beautiful psalm. And as we make our journey through this psalm, I believe we will be filled both with joy but also sorrow as we see the life of Sarah Boardman Judson reflected in its truth. One of the things we're going to learn about this wonderful missionary lady is that she had an absolute confidence in her sovereign God and in her wonderful Savior. In fact, it was that confidence that enabled her to pen this hymn, Proclaim the lofty praise of him who once was slain, but now is risen through endless days to live and reign. He lives and reigns on high who bought us with his blood, enthroned above the farthest sky, our Savior, our God. Let's work our way through this text now and note four wonderful truths about the God who knows what he is doing. Number one, we should thank God for who he is before the nations. David begins, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. David sounds a note of thanksgiving from the very beginning of the psalm. Oh, Lord, with my whole heart, I will give thanks to you. And he says, I will praise you before what the text calls before the gods. Now, if you do a comparison of various English translations, you will see that there's a Hebrew phrase there that is somewhat unclear. For example, the Christian Standard Bible says, I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. Uh, the ESV, as I just read, before the gods. Others will translate it before judges, and some even have the translation before kings. But I do think the ESV uh, got it right. And indeed, I follow what Alan Ross says, who 
favors the translation before the gods, and he makes this comment. Other passages in this part of the Psalter refer to pagan gods as well. Psalm 95, Psalm 96, Psalm 115. The psalmist then praises the greatness and glory of Yahweh in the face, so to speak, of these false gods. We prefer this understanding in verse 2. I believe expands the thought of verse 1, explaining just how David will testify and sing his thanksgiving of the Lord before these false gods. He tells us, I will bow down toward God's holy temple or tabernacle in Jerusalem. Uh, there, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord's name for your hesed, your constant love, your steadfast love. And I also will sing both of your love, but also of your truth. Why? Because you have exalted your name and your word above everything else. Charles Spurgeon, whose three volumes on the Psalms is a must-purchase for any serious seminary student, said this about this phrase, the name of the Lord in nature is not so easily read as in the Scriptures, which are a revelation in human language specifically adapted to the human mind, treating of human need and of a Savior who appeared in human nature to redeem humanity. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but the divine word will not pass away. And in this respect, especially, it has a preeminence over every other form of manifestation. Moreover, the Lord lays all the rest of his name under tribute to his word, his wisdom, power, love, and all his other attributes combine to carry out his word. It is his word which creates, sustains, quickens, enlightens, and comforts. As a word of command, it is supreme. And in the person of the incarnate word, it is set above all the works of God's hand. Let us adore the Lord who has spoken to us by his word and by his son in the presence of unbelievers. Let us both praise his holy name and extol his holy word. If ever there was a follower of the Lord Jesus who praised the name of the Lord and extolled his gospel before the lost and their false gods, it was Sarah Boardman Judson. A little background. Sarah was born on November the 4th, 1803 in Alstead, New Hampshire. She was the oldest of 13 children in a family that was extremely poor. At the age of 17 in 1820, she was converted, professed Christ and baptized, and she felt the call to missions immediately and wished, quote, to follow in the footsteps of her heroine Ann Judson, who had visited America in 1823. Now, there is a wonderful book that recounts the life of Sarah Boardman that I would commend to all of you. It is entitled Missionary Biography, The Memoir of Sarah B. Judson, Member of the American Mission to Burma, and it was penned by a woman named Fanny Forrester who would become Emily Judson and the third wife 
of Adoniram Judson. He married Anne, she died. He married Sarah, she died. He married Emily, she would outlast him, though Judson would die almost certainly from tuberculosis. Emily, taking care of him, would contract tuberculosis. Following his death, she would return to America, and she would also die within a couple of years. Well, she loved Sarah, the second wife of Adoniram Judson, and so she penned a wonderful, wonderful biography. And in that biography, she includes an entry from Sarah's journal written less than a month after her baptism. So this is a newly wed at the age of 21 writing these words. While I have this day had the privilege of worshiping the true God in solemnity, I have been pained by the thoughts of those who have never heard the sound of the gospel. When will the time come that the poor heathen, now let me interject, in our day and time, uh, you hear the word heathen and you will think of it as a derogatory kind of term, but that was not true in her day. In fact, every time you see the word heathen in this day and age, you should think of lost because that's all they meant by that particular phrase. So when will the time come that the poor lost, now bowing to idols, shall own the living and true God? Dear Savior, haste to spread the knowledge of thy dying love to earth's remotest parts. Her passion for the loss would continue to grow over the next several years. She became, for example, involved in a tract society and the distribution of tracts. She also established a prayer meeting that she led. All but one who attended came to faith in Christ. However, it was her love for the lost far away that would not wane. And so in a letter to a dear friend, she wrote this, it is my ardent desire that the glorious work of reformation may extend till every knee shall bow to the living God. For this expected, this promised era, let us pray earnestly, unceasingly, and with faith. How can I be so inactive when I know that thousands are perishing in this land of grace and millions in other lands are at this very moment kneeling before senseless idols. But she hesitated for a brief period of time, thinking that her desire to go to the nations was probably uh, inappropriate, that it was not really what God wanted her to do. And so she said this in her journal, sinners perishing all around me, and I almost panting to tell the far heathen of Christ, surely this is wrong. I will no longer indulge the vain foolish wish, but endeavor to, and may we all say this, be useful in the position where providence has placed me. I can pray for deluded idolaters and for those who labor among them, and this is a privilege indeed. Sarah, however, could not shake loose of her concern for the lost far away and her heart for international missions would find a companion in a man by the name of George Boardman. Now, it's very providential how they got together. Uh, George Boardman had read a poem 
about the death of a missionary. All we know is the missionary's last name, Coleman, and that they had died in what is today modern Bangladesh, and he'd only been on the field for two years. Boardman was so moved by the poem, he said, I've got to track down the author of that poem, and can you believe it? The author was Sarah, who would become Sarah Boardman. So he met Sarah Hall, almost immediately proposed to her. She almost immediately said yes, and then they talked about going to the nation. Now, this is interesting. Stay with me. Initially, both her friends and her family discouraged her both from marrying him or going with him to the nation. In fact, initially, her parents withheld their consent for them to get married. But eventually, they gave their permission. And so George and Sarah, Sarah at the age of 21, would marry on July the 4th. 1825, and then they would leave one month later for Burma. The voyage would take 127 days. She would never return to America again. Never see her siblings, never see her mother, never see her father again. In fact, the departure is one of the most moving stories in all of missionary lore, and Fanny Forrester, Emily Judson, records it beautifully. I quote, we recollect that when she left her parental home to reach the ship, which was to convey her over the dark and distant sea, after she had taken her seat in the stagecoach with her chosen companion and had bestowed her last farewell upon the family group, as though she felt that she had not obtained that free and full consent to her abandonment of home and country, which her filial heart craved, she looked out at the coach window and said, Father, are you willing? Say, Father, that you are willing that I should go. Yes, my child, I am willing. Her response, now I can go joyfully. And the noble wanderer went on her way with cheerful composure. Later, recounting the scene again, Sarah would write to her husband's parents, my mother embraced me as tenderly when she whispered, Sarah, I hope I am willing, as she did one month before when she wildly said, oh, I cannot part with you. Fanny then adds to this sorrowful scene, and so the fond child's heart was made glad even in the moment of its agony. For something of the previous reluctance of the sorrow-stricken parents to resign their treasure, treasure may be gathered from such pleading as these from Sarah. Let us, my dear parents, go to Calvary. Let us behold for a few moments the meek, the holy Lamb of God, bleeding for our transgressions. Then let us inquire, shall I withhold from this Savior any object, however dear to my heart? 
Shall I be unwilling to suffer a few short years of toil and privation for his sake? Let us call to remembrance those days of darkness through which we passed before Jesus lifted us to the light of his countenance. We have, I trusted, each of us seen our lost and ruined condition by nature, have seen ourselves exposed to the righteous indignation of our Creator, have felt ourselves sinking into endless despair and ruin, and all this is merited. But, oh, amazing love, at that desperate moment, the Savior smiled upon us. He opened his arms of compassion, all polluted as we were with iniquity. He received us, forgave our sins, and bade us hope for joy unutterable beyond the grave. Did we not then surrender all into his hand? Was not this the language of our hearts? Had I a thousand lives to give, a thousand lives should be all thine. And has not the precious Redeemer as strong claims upon us now as he had then? Let us like David and like Sarah thank God and proclaim his love and faithfulness before the nations. Number two, thank God that he answers prayers as we witness. Verse three naturally flows out of verses one and two. David praised and thanked God for his constant love and his faithfulness because at a specified and unspecified time when David sought the Lord, he says, on the day I called, what did God do? You answered. Furthermore, he says, in answering, God increased strength within me. Alec Motyer, the wonderful Old Testament scholar, says, you invigorate me with strength. In other words, within uh, his inner being, the Lord gave David strength and courage and boldness as he rejoiced in God before the pagan gods and their idolatrous followers. This is certainly something God did very well in the life of Sarah Boardman. Uh, unsurprisingly, being a missionary to Burma at that particular time, she experienced, as did her husband, many hardships on the mission field. More than once, she nearly died from severe sickness, giving birth to three children with George. Only one, little Georgie, would survive infancy. On more than one occasion, her life was put in danger by robberies of her home, riots and rebellions as the Burmese engaged in war with the English. Indeed, she was warned by an English general of what he called a double danger from savage beasts and savage men. And yet in her journal, Sarah would write, and I quote, we trembled when we thought of the disturbance in Burma, and there was only one spot where we could find peace and serenity of mind. That sweet spot was the throne of grace. There we would often go and lose all anxiety and fear respecting our dear friends, our own future prospects, and the missionary calls in Burma. It was sweet to commit all into the hands of God. We considered it our duty to supplicate for grace to support us in the hour of trial and for direction in time of perplexity. And in her journal, she does reference one particular moment when their family was robbed at night, knowing that had the baby that was sleeping at her breast awakened, they certainly would have all been murdered. And so she recounts that event this way. 
I saw the assassins with their horrid weapons standing by our bedside, ready to do their worst had we been permitted to wake. Oh, how merciful was that watchful providence which prolonged those powerful slumbers of that night, not allowing even the infant at my bosom to open its eyes at so critical a moment. If ever gratitude glowed in my bosom, if ever the world appeared to me worthless as vanity, and if ever I wished to dedicate myself, my husband, my babe, my all to our great Redeemer, it was at that time. Yes, my beloved friend, I think I can say that notwithstanding our alarms, never did five months of my life pass as pleasantly as the last five have done. The thought of being among this people who we have so long desired to see and the hope that God would enable me to do some little good to the poor heathen has rejoiced and encouraged my heart. I confess that once or twice my natural timidity has for a moment gained ascendancy over my better feelings, but these fears have been transitory and we have generally been enabled to place our confidence in the great shepherd of Israel, who never slumbers or sleeps, assured that he would protect us. And we have also felt a sweet composure in the reflection that God has marked out our way. And if it best accord with his designs that we fall prey to these bloodthirsty monsters, all will be right. Thank God that he answers prayer as we witness. Number three, thank God that he blesses the humble, but he rejects the proud. Verses four through six contain what Alan Ross calls a prophecy concerning the nations. I refer to it as a blessed missionary promise. The text tells us that all the nations represented by their kings will give you thanks, Lord, when they hear what you have promised. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. By the way, the language there is very similar to the language of Revelation chapter 21, verses 24, where it speaks of what life will be like in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. This text also anticipates the language of Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 15 in the great suffering servant of the Lord song. When the kings of the earth hear of the great salvation of God on their behalf through their servant, they will sing of the Lord's ways, joyfully acknowledge that the Lord's glory, it is great. So what you see here is a beautiful wedding, both of salvation, verse 4, and adoration, verse 5. Further, the glory of the Lord is further made known when you consider that though he is exalted, there is the language of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that when God is exalted, he will do something magnificent, both with the humble, but also the haughty. Verse 6, the Lord, he's high but he regards, he takes notice of, he cares for the lowly, the humble, but the proud, the the haughty, he only knows them from afar. As one man said, God is great, and the arrogant only think that they are great. 
and the humble he knows lovingly and intimately, but the arrogant, the prideful, he keeps them at arm's length. Spurgeon, again, commenting on this passage, says that it reveals to him that a glance from afar reveals to him their emptiness, their offensiveness. He has no respect for the prideful, but rather he utterly abhors them. The Burmese were awash in pagan religion, and they were a very proud and self-righteous people. It was not surprising that the Judsons and the Bormans had to labor almost seven years before they saw a single convert. It required patience. It required a steady proclaiming of the gospel over and over and over to break down that barrier, but that's exactly what God did through the Judsons and the Bormans. One particular example. God brought a notorious Karen. The Karen were a dominant people group in Burma. They still are mostly living in the mountains and in the rural areas, but he brought a notorious Karen criminal and murderer. In fact, some uh, sources indicate he may have murdered more than 30 people. His name was Ko Thai Wyun, and he came to faith in Christ. When he did, George Boardman baptized him and discipled him, and he would become basically the Apostle Paul among the Karen people, and the gospel literally exploded in great power through the work of this evangelist and this missionary man. Now, again, the promise of God is so evident because it appears, it's almost undeniable, that God had been working in this particular place for many decades, maybe even centuries, for the day of their salvation. In the book, The Lives of the Three Mrs. Judsons, we read this as to what happened concerning the, the Karen. They believed in a God who they knew as Yuwa. Sounds kind of familiar. Though they recognized that their wickedness had separated them from this God, they believed God will again have mercy upon us. God will save us again. And when will that day come? In one of their traditional songs, we read this verse, when the Karen king arrives, everything will be happy. When Karens have a king... Here comes Isaiah, wild beast will lose their savageness. And reflecting upon the grace of God among the Karen, but recognizing there was still much work to be done, Sarah would write at the age of 25 to a beloved sister in 1828 to suffer many little inconveniences in this country, but have no disposition to complain. We rejoice in the kind providence that has directed our steps and would not exchange our condition. Our desires is to labor among the poor heathen until called to our eternal home. God, by the way, would answer the desire of Sarah's heart because both George and she would die on the mission field, never again returning to America. Thank God that he blesses his humble servants. Number four, 
Thank God that he will fulfill his purpose in your life. The last two verses of Psalm 138 uh, contain a powerful confession of confidence in the providence, the protection, and the grace of God. As we walk in the midst of troubles, God says, I will do five things for you. Number one, you will preserve my life. Number two, you will stretch out your hand, which means his strong hand of deliverance against the wrath of my enemies. Number three, your right hand, your hand of strength will deliver me. Number four, the Lord, he will fulfill his purpose for me. Number five, I rest in the truth. Your steadfast love, your hesed, O Lord, it endures forever. Therefore, I am confident you will not forsake the work of your hands. You preserve my life from the anger or wrath of my enemies. You extend your hand, your power and strength. Your right hand will save me, deliver me. You will fulfill your purpose for me. Your faithful love endures forever. How these faithful promises fit so beautifully the life of Sarah Hall Boardman Judson. A few examples. God would spare her life on more than one occasion from serious illness. God would sustain her heart upon the death of her little daughter, Sarah, who died on July the 8th, 1829, at the age of two years and eight months. She would watch her husband slowly descend into death from tuberculosis. And of this time, she would write to her mother, Oh, my dear mother, it would distress you to see how emaciated he is and so weak that he can scarce able to move. God is calling to me in a most impressive manner to set my heart on heavenly things. Two lovely infants already in the world of bliss. My beloved husband suffering under a disease which will most assuredly take him from me, my own poor health and little Georgie, often ill. George Boardman would die in February of 1831. Of her husband's first death, Sarah would write, he exhibited a tenderness of spirit, a holy sensibility such as I never witnessed before. He seemed to see the goodness of God in everything. Boy, how we need people like that today. He would weep while conversing on the love of Jesus, and words cannot describe to you the depth of feeling with which he spoke of his own unworthiness. And as he neared death, Sarah reported him saying, this is her husband speaking, you know, Sarah, that coming on a foreign mission involves the probability of a shorter life than staying in one's native country. And yet obedience to our Lord and compassion for the perishing heathen induced us to make this sacrifice. And have we ever repented that we came? No. I trust we both say that we bless God for bringing us to Burma, for directing our footsteps to Tavoy, and even for leading us hither. George would die February the 11th, 1831. He was only 30 years old. Old. Now listen very carefully. At first, as would have made all the sense in the world, Sarah considered returning to America with her young son. But her love for the Burmese compelled her to stay, and she would not go. 
I let her speak for herself. When I first stood by the grave of my husband, I thought I must go home with George. But these poor, inquiring, and Christian Karens and the schoolboys and the Burmese Christians would then be left without anyone to instruct them. And the poor, ignorant Devoyans would go on in the road to death with no one to warn them of their danger. How then, oh, how can I go? We shall not be separated long, a few more years, and we shall all meet in yonder blissful world, whether those we love have gone before us. I feel thankful that I was allowed to come to the heathen land. Oh, it is a precious privilege to tell idolaters of the gospel. And when we see them disposed to love the Savior, we forget all our privations and dangers. My beloved husband wore out his life in this glorious cause, and that remembrance makes me more than ever attached to the work and the people for whose salvation he labored till death. Three years after her husband's death, Aaron Judson would marry Sarah Boardman. She had not returned home to America as many friends counseled her to do, though she would, with a broken heart, eventually send her young son George back to America because of health concerns of his. I love this. He would become the much-respected pastor of the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia, as well as a well-known opponent of slavery. Sarah would remain in Burma, continuing the work, making evangelistic tours, preaching the gospel to men and women when no qualified man was available. By the way, when I tweeted about this some months ago, I got attacked uh, by some of our Reformed brethren for not having sufficient confidence in God's providence to provide without the use of a woman. Then they discover that John Calvin agrees with me and they quit attacking me. I guess they find more inspiration from that John than some other Johns, like the one in the Bible, but I'll just leave that be for right now. She kept supervising schools that she'd established. She translated the Pilgrim's Progress into Burmese. She translated tracts, a book on the life of Christ, the New Testament into Penguin, which was a particular language needed in Burma. And concerning her preaching to both men and women, a point of controversy in her day and hours, as you would expect, well, her biographer, Fanny Forster, uh, Emily Judson, put things in proper perspective. I quote, but now she said in the Zayat, which had been erected for her husband at the foot of the mountain, and in others, wherever a little company of worshipers could be collected and performed even weightier offices than those of Miriam and Anna, but meek and sometimes tearful, speaking in low, gentle accents and with a manner sweetly persuasive. In several instances, she, she, she thus conducted the worship of two or three hundred Karens uh, through the medium of her Burmese interpreter, and such was her modest manner of accomplishing the unusual task that even the most fastidious were pleased. And a high officer of the English church which is well known to take strict cognizance of irregularities, saw fit to bestow her unqualified, upon her unqualified praise. 
These acts, however, were not in accordance with her feminine taste or her sense of propriety. The duty which called her to them was fashioned by peculiar circumstances. And as soon as the opportunity offered, she gladly relinquished the task in favor of a person better suited to its performance. I know we're a little long, but let me hasten and conclude. And when I finish, I will uh, close and dismiss us in prayer this morning. Sarah Borman Judson would be married to missionary Adoniram Judson for 11 years. She would love him and labor alongside of him faithfully as she had her first husband, George. She would have eight children with him. Five would survive into adulthood. And in her obituary, her husband's opinion of his second wife is faithfully captured. I quote, The memoir of his first beloved wife, that is Anne Judson, had been long before the public. It is therefore most gratifying to his feelings to be able to say in truth that the subject of this notice was in every point of natural and moral excellence the worthy successor of Anne Judson. He constantly thanks God that he has been blessed with two of the best of wives, and he deeply feels that he has not improved those rich blessings as he ought, and it is most painful to reflect that from the peculiar pressure of the missionary life, he has sometimes failed to treat those dear beings with that consideration, attention, and kindness which their situation in a foreign heathen land ever demanded. Sarah became deathly ill. The plan was to go home to America with the hope she might recover. It was not to be. Adoniram, Sarah, and three of their small children set sail. Though she briefly rebounded, she lapsed in health once again, and it was obvious that she would soon die. Sarah went to be with the Savior she so dearly adored and loved at St. Helena, the South Atlantic, on September the 1st, 1845, she was not quite 42 years old. Biographer Fanny Forrester, Emily Judson, records the final shared word between Adoniram and, and, and Sarah. As I move to close, there are no need to comment on what she said. A few days before her death, Adoniram called her children to her bedside and said in their hearing, I wish my love to ask pardon for every unkind word or deed of which I have ever been guilty. I feel that I have in many instances failed of treating you with that kindness and affection which you have ever deserved. Oh, she said, you will kill me if you talk so. It is I that should ask pardon of you. And I only want to get well that I might have an opportunity of making some return for all your kindnesses of showing you how much I love you. This recollection of her dying bed leads me to say a few words relative to the closing scene of her life. Her hope had long been fixed on the rock of ages, and she had been in the habit of contemplating death as neither distant nor undesirable. As it drew near, she remained perfectly tranquil. No shade of doubt or fear or anxiety ever passed over her mind. She had prevailed preference, had a prevailing preference to depart and be with Christ. I am longing to depart, and what can I want besides? A few days later, the time of her departure to go with Jesus arrived, and her husband provides the details of their joyful and sorrowful separation. 
at two o'clock in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition. I roused her attention and I said, do you still love the Savior? Oh yes, she replied. I ever loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I said again, do you still love me? She replied in the affirmative by a peculiar expression of her own. Then give me one more kiss. And we exchanged that token of love for the last time. Another hour passed. Life continued to recede. She ceased to breathe. For a moment, I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her view. I then closed her sightless eyes, dressed her for the last time in the drapery of death, and being quite exhausted with many sleepless nights, I threw myself down and slept on an awakening in the morning, I saw the children standing and weeping around the body of their dead mother. Today, there are 1.6 million Baptists in Miramar. Today, there are almost 5,000 churches in Miramar. Today, Miramar has one of the world's largest Baptist communities in the world because of the work of the Judsons and the Boardmans. I think we can agree with the psalmist and say, yes, our God really does know what he is doing. Would you stand with me as we dismiss in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement of Psalm 138 that reminds us of your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Lord, we thank you that that faithfulness and steadfast love was real in David's life, and it was also so real in the life of Sarah Boardman Judson. How I thank you for this trophy of your grace that you used in an incredible way to reach an entire nation with the gospel. Lord, may you at Southeastern Seminary, by your grace and for your glory, raise up many and Judsons, Sarah Boardman Judsons, Emily Judsons, George Boardmans, Aaron Judsons, who will be willing to pay it all because you paid it all to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to those who have yet never even heard the name of Jesus. We ask this in your saving name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.